while the calories in calories out framework provides a simple understanding of that kind of like weight loss or weight gain weight management concept it is really important to note that other factors such as the quality of your food or the macronutrient composition lifestyle choices individual metabolism play a role in someone's experience of that equation but they don't change the equation themselves that equation remains that equation now, sometimes on social media i think these changes in totality may seem restrictive or disordered diet culture swaps but i think that has more to do with the fact that we're looking at these things in gross amounts particularly on social media so if you become obsessive and make every single diet swap change that was suggested online then yeah maybe you would have a little bit of an issue right and that would lend more to restrictive dieting but the point of sharing those diet swaps is really just to show and to demonstrate that it doesn't have to be some huge gargantuan sized change to your life this drastic change it can be like just make some significant small but significant swaps that's it doesn't have to be that complicated understanding where an individual be it yourself or be it someone that you're working with in this are kind of sit within these stages can be extremely helpful for effective intervention in weight management you're here listening to this podcast you're doing the work don't be so hard on yourself hello everyone welcome to the virtue podcast today we're going to unpack a topic you've heard many times before maybe you're even sick of hearing about it although i'm kind of guessing that if you clicked on this episode it's probably sparked your interest in some way Today, we are unpacking the fundamentals of fat loss, but we're going to take a biopsychosocial lens. I do lie. We're not really going to take the social lens today just because socioeconomic factors of fat loss or let's just say obesity, in fact, way too much for this episode. And there's already too much in the biological and psychological, to be honest. And I don't even get to everything that I want to in this episode. I had so much fun recording it, but I really found it difficult to narrow things down because... Yes, it's a fundamentals episode, so I am trying to, you know, just cover some top line, easy to digest concepts and and not even easy to digest, just like things that really easy to overlook and to, to kind of ignore and decide that, oh no, fat loss is a much more complex issue. And it's like, it is a complex issue, but we have to address the fundamentals first. Now, for those of you that are new here, welcome. For those of you who are returning, welcome back. I'm stoked that you're back. If you're new, you know, it's really important to probably have a recap on what the biopsychosocial approach is, because I would say that this model underpins not just this particular episode, but the entire podcast and everything that I do and create with the Virtue Method programs and courses and content. Essentially, the biopsychosocial approach acknowledges that our health and our health outcomes are dictated by more than just the physical. So yes, there are biological factors, but there are also psychological factors that are impacting our health outcomes. And there are also socioeconomic factors too. So that hence the name biopsychosocial. Now, if you haven't listened to earlier episodes, please feel free to do so where I sort of unpack what that is a little bit more. The goal of this podcast and every episode of my podcast is to try to, I guess, share the good, the bad, and the downright, I would say disordered, but possibly even cut through some of the BS that you will find in the wellness space using the help of this biopsychosocial approach or lens. I'm going to say so that we can cover the nuance that gets left out of social media in other ways. So without further ado, let's 
get into it. It's a big one. It's a big full-on meal today. So let's eat. Starting with the biological. Okay, so probably the best place to start is the calories in versus calories out framework or equation. So the CICO or calories in, calories out framework is a really, truly fundamental concept in understanding fat gain and fat loss. I apologize if you have heard this many, many times because maybe it is frustrating, but let's just all kind of like heads together, go over these fundamentals again, even if you have heard it before. Essentially, it refers to the balance between the number of calories consumed through food and drinks, right? That's your calories in and the number of calories burned through physical activity and of course, metabolism as well, right? And that's your calories out. Okay. Now, based on this framework, if the number of calories consumed exceeds the number of calories burned, well, there's going to be a surplus of energy and that leads to weight gain. Now, on the other hand, if the number of calories burned exceeds the number of calories consumed, right? If you're burning more than you are consuming, eating and drinking, then there's going to be an energy deficit. And that is going to lead to some kind of weight loss. Now, while the calories in, calories out framework provides a simple understanding of that kind of like weight loss or weight gain, weight management concept, it is really important to note that other factors such as the quality of your food or the macronutrient composition, lifestyle choices, individual metabolism play a role in someone's experience of that equation, but they don't change the equation themselves. Okay. And I will unpack that more, but I just want to say this from the get-go, that equation remains. <laughs> and so as much as we might want to think that there's some magic in a ketogenic diet, or there's some magic to other factors, be whatever diet they may be, even things like you know, weight loss drugs like a Zempic, just to name one of them, Monjaro, they're all just the names, but GLP-1 essentially, all they're doing is controlling usually energy in, right? There are some other substances that you can take that control energy out. Uh, so like control metabolism, we're not talking about them. We're not going to unpack a Zempic or GLP-1s either, but I just want to clarify that most of the approaches out there are looking at the calories in equation aspect of that equation. There's no magic going on. That equation remains that equation. So understanding and managing the balance between calories in and calories out is obviously going to be a key aspect of achieving and maintaining healthy body weight because, well, essentially it's really easy to understand, <laughs> but arguably not that easy to apply. The biggest takeaway here is that the process of weight loss is only going to occur when you're in a deficit. That's the reality. So all the noise about keto, about fasting, even obesity and diabetes medications, like I said, like Zempic, Manjaro, all those GLP-1 agonists, even surgery, like bariatric surgery, they're all just mechanisms for facilitating the deficit, right? By mitigating, in this case, caloric intake. Now, the latter options... The medical options, surgery options, are obviously providing a slightly stronger mechanism that helps to override willpower through chemical or structural changes. And I'm going to unpack those structural changes in future episodes, but also address why they might be so necessary in a few minutes. So the main thing to remember is that if we're not facilitating that deficit, either through energy in or in some way energy in, it's not possible to reduce those adipocytes. 
right? Or those triglycerides or, or burn, get through those triglycerides. So if it sounds so simple, calories in versus calories out, why, oh, why does it feel so hard, so stubborn at times? And there's a few reasons for this. And for this, we will have to get into the psychological and eventually social lens. But we're going to cover two key areas that many people in the past go, I guess, I don't want to use the word wrong. I want to say that these two key factors are really under-respected and they're related to the physiological process of fat loss. Starting with the first, your body is a fat storing machine. It is amazing at it. Your body did not evolve in the food paradise that exists for many people today. Granted, not all people live in a food paradise. And I would also say that even if they do have access to a lot of food, there's a difference between a nutrient paradise and just empty calorie food paradise, which we'll discuss when when I bring in the socioeconomic uh, lens in later episodes. But essentially, you know, your body was designed in a very sparse environment. And by sparse, I mean food was hard to come by. Essentially, it took energy to obtain energy, and that energy also took more energy to break down. A lot of the foods that we did have access to had a higher TEF, thermic effect of food, which means essentially consuming these foods also came with a caloric price, right? When we eat a steak, it takes more energy to break that down than it does to, you know, break down an already refined and highly processed cookie, for example. Now, because of this fat storing capacity, this amazing power that your body has, by the way, which like kept us alive, right? Continues, maybe not continues in this obesogenic kind of environment that we're in, but definitely kept us alive. And, and the capacity that the body has to protect you from fat loss, well, it has very powerful mechanisms in place to help you find food and store it for future famine, right, when you don't have access to it. So if you are keeping hyperpalatable, which means really just tasty, tasty foods around you, if you are constantly ordering takeout, if you are going on restrictive diets and then binging because you can't stick to them, your body is going to get you out of that deficit through a number of mechanisms. For example, some things like NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is basically just a fancy word for (laughs) fidgeting and moving around that isn't planned, right? So everything but exercise, right? When I scratch my head, when I get up out of the bed and go back to the bed or go to the whatever, the fridge pull, using muscles to do anything that doesn't have to do with like some kind of planned movement related to exercise, that falls under the category of non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So that is usually unconscious and it goes down, right? That is to say, we naturally start to move less. And this is our body's attempt to reduce expenditure so we don't end up in a calorie deficit. So if you are already on a diet and you are already in a deficit, over time, your body will start to reduce that movement naturally. And that can start to mean that you move out of your deficit. Okay, and that's just one subtle way that the body makes these changes. There's all kinds of ways. When I talked about appetite last week, too long of a deficit can sometimes create changes in the way that your body regulates those appetite hormones. So (laughs) that's so much to chew here. So just because calories in versus calories out sounds simple, it's really not. It's not in application. Okay, just like being rich is not as simple as make more money and spend less. 
right? Imagine telling people who are struggling financially right now that the secret to their freedom from financial distress is to spend less and make more. Thanks, hun. You solved all my problems. I hadn't thought of that. Thank you. So you can understand why people get frustrated when it's like, and we get frustrated with ourselves. We're like, what? The equation is so simple. How is it possible? How is this possible that I am not in a deficit or that I'm not losing weight or that I'm not dropping body fat. It is the most simple equation. And that can lend to more kind of psychological issues where we start to feel silly. So I wanted to bring that point because it's not as easy in application and you need to honor that and give that respect to yourself and your body if you are on a fat loss journey and not beat yourself up over it. (laughs) Rant over. Okay. So the body has powerful, powerful mechanisms for preventing a deficit, which is why really a, we have to stop judging those with obesity who need extra help in that appetite regulation and maybe even stop judging ourselves. But also we need to be structured in our own approach if fat loss or weight loss is a goal, okay, because we are up against these very strong biological, psychological drives. Now, the second area that I see many people go wrong in the physiological context is underestimating small changes. Okay, for example, cooking with a tablespoon of olive oil is roughly 120 calories, whereas cooking with a spray is roughly six to eight calories. And that's for like a one second olive oil spray. Now that might not seem like much, right? You might be like, yeah, what's 120 calories? I love olive oil in my salad, like whatever. But imagine the accumulation of that over the course of a week. So for example, if you had, let's say a tablespoon of oil in like two out of three meals in a day, right? What's that? That's 14 meals across the week. That's the difference between a spray, which would be 112 calories across your week versus if you were doing a tablespoon of oil, which would be 1600 calories or 1680 to be exact across the week, right? That could be a huge difference in your deficit. And all it is, is switching out your use of oil. This is just one small change, but it could be enough to facilitate the deficit that you need to see changes that aren't drastic, right? That aren't going to have you living in a state of constant craving. Sometimes on social media, I think these changes in totality may seem restrictive or disordered diet culture swaps, but I think that has more to do with the fact that we're looking at these things in gross amounts, particularly on social media. So if you become obsessive and make every single diet swap change that was suggested online, then yeah, maybe you would have a little bit of an issue, right? And that would lend more to restrictive dieting. But the point of sharing those diet swaps is really just to show and to demonstrate that it doesn't have to be some huge gargantuan sized change to your life this drastic change it can be like just make some significant small but significant swaps that's it doesn't have to be that complicated so if you're on a fat loss journey i want you to remember that the body is not going to make it easy for you but that's okay because a the obstacle is the way and b you don't have to aggressively diet small changes accumulate How are we feeling? I feel like we might need a little music break to establish the change from the physiological lens to the psychological lens. Okay. Now, during this break, I do encourage you to just jot down any questions you have for me and you can put them in the Q&A box or DM me on social media. My Instagram is shown underscore virtue. My DMs are always open for you guys. And if I miss it the first time, just message me again. It just might mean that like I have a huge influx of DMs every single day and I try to get to a certain amount, but sometimes some get pushed down and I miss them. Okay. So in addition to the biological factors, we have 
psychological factors as well and they influence fat storage and fat loss obesity maintenance etc within the context of the psychological factors we have stress emotional eating body image dissatisfaction there's cognitive distortions there's all kinds of things that can impact eating behaviors and therefore those things can contribute to weight gain now stress is a complicated one we will talk about it in a small detail a bit later but stress is one of those ones where it can both change eating behaviors but it can also potentially and this is depending on the severity of the stress and depending on the genetics of the body and how it handles stress-related hormones like cortisol, that can also determine some fat distribution. Now, I have no idea, no idea why on earth I thought I would be able to unpack or create a fundamental approach to the psychological (laughs) factors here. Like I sat down to kind of ponder on this concept and I was like, how am I going to narrow these down and give them the level of attention that they deserve, right? And you've already (laughs) just sat through a huge amount. So instead of attempting to address every concept or model that has been introduced in the field of psychology or health psychology or psychology related to obesity, I want to bring something that I learned in my health psychology units and something that definitely changed my coaching ability as well, the way in which I work with people. And it's something called the trans-theoretical model. It's also known as the stages of change model. Now, it was developed by two clinical psychologists, James Prochaska and Carlo Di Clemente, way back in the 80s. <laughs> but as we have discussed with models, a model has to be tested over and over again. So that's why I kind of get mad about that carbohydrate-insulin model, because I'm like, but findings aren't that robust. Anyway, maybe I'm not reading the right things, but when we look back at this model, for example, there's a a lot of research and has gone into understanding this stages of change or trans-theoretical model. Truly, it's used to understand and facilitate behavioral change. And as usual, it's related to health behaviors, right? But the model identifies five main stages through which we will typically progress when making a change. The first is the pre-contemplation phase. Now at this stage, we're not really considering change. Okay. We're completely unaware of the need for any kind of change in our life. We may even be in denial about it. Now this can happen a lot with substance abuse, right? I'm sure we've all been in the presence of that person. Maybe it's even been us where we are completely unaware that there is even a problem. That's pre-contemplation. Stage two is the contemplation phase. Now here we might be aware of the need for change. Maybe we're considering it, but we haven't made any sort of commitment to taking action. None whatsoever. We're just kind of like, oh, something's not quite right here. Preparation phase, the third. So those of us in this stage, we're preparing to take action. We've made some small changes and are planning significant changes in the immediate future. The fourth is action. Now, this stage involves active modification of behavior. We are overtly making changes to our lifestyle, such as, you know, whatever, eating healthier, exercising more, quitting smoking, whatever it might be. But it's like that is truly when you are in it. And then the final stage is maintenance. Now, at this stage, we're working towards sustaining our new behaviors and we're doing that to prevent relapse into old habits. Okay, and this stage really can last from several months to years. How would we apply this model more specifically to fat loss? Okay, so understanding where an individual 
be it yourself or be it someone that you're working with in this our R kind of sit within these stages can be extremely helpful for effective intervention in weight management so for any coaches that are listening no matter what the area right whether you're working in personal training or you're working in uh, rehab or any any area where you are impacting and affecting and helping someone's health behavior change then I highly recommend looking into this model and I will apply it to fat loss now right so pre-contemplation so for someone who's not considering weight loss we're not really going to start talking about the how-to of weight loss with that person, right? Instead, we wanna educate about the health risks of being overweight and the benefit of losing fat might actually be the focus of the dialogue that we have with this person. Obviously, anyone in this stage, it's really important not to push too hard because it can lead to resistance, which makes people you know, obviously completely check out. The second phase, contemplation. So here, the goal is to help someone resolve their ambivalence, right? Discussion about the pros and cons of losing weight, important, just like in the pre-contemplation phase, but also starting to explore personal values, like how they might align with weight loss goals might be more effective because it helps them to get to a deeper level of care, which helps to eradicate that ambivalence, as I said, and the preparation. So in this stage, we're going to be more receptive to setting goals and planning. Okay, setting realistic and achievable goals. Goal setting can be really fun, really dopamine inducing. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Obviously, eventually we have to action on those. But setting goals can be a really important part. Action phase number four, active support is so crucial here, right? And this can involve regular monitoring or checking in with diet. This can be programming, providing feedback, addressing any challenges that arise, right? This is someone who is truly in the action phase. And therefore the conversation that you have with someone in the action phase versus that pre-contemplation phase is going to be chalk and cheese, like completely different. So understanding where you are in that is really important. And then finally, we have the maintenance phase. So if someone is in that maintenance phase, you want to consider long-term support strategies, right? This might include ongoing support that doesn't necessarily involve like such hands-on action, but it's also, it might be like more counseling, more coaching from afar, support groups even. Now, People who are doing my programs, you guys are most likely in the action or maintenance phase. People who are following the podcast or my Instagram, maybe you're in the action or maintenance phase, or maybe you're in preparation. Maybe you're gathering information about it, seeing what's out there. Contemplation and pre-contemplation phases are different. And and I just want to highlight here, one of the reasons that you might see a lot of coaches or PTs or any health professional online being what looks like kind of extreme in or alarmist if you will really trying to ramp up that severity like these are the reasons that you need to lose weight these are the you know is because they're likely trying to move you out of that contemplation or pre-contemplation phase they're trying to get your attention enough so that you want to actually move into preparation action or maintenance now it's the same thing with that perceived severity they probably need to ramp up the severity or your perception of the severity or susceptibility to a potential health problem so that you feel motivated to engage with the behavior or the thing that they're selling, right? Whether it's a program or whatever it might be. Hopefully they have a good intention and they're still trying to promote that in the hopes that you will um, still get a good outcome. All right. Do we go off track? We did go a little off track. Okay. So how's this information going to help you right now? 
I think that it is really important to take an honest look at your habits, both across intake and expenditure, and ask yourself if you are really truly in an action phase or if there are some parts of you in preparation or contemplation phase. Okay, so understanding this trans-theoretical model can really help you to establish which parts of your life, which parts of these health behaviors are truly in action state versus in contemplation or maybe even like there's areas that you're in denial in and so increasing that self-awareness is only going to help the other way i think this model can help is that it can highlight the importance of a good network of support that is required for that action phase and these things really require help so don't be disheartened if you are struggling to do it alone as i mentioned fat loss is a simple concept but it's not a simple override and i would even go as far to say like you could apply that to you know, substance abuse as well. Okay, so most people who have ever been through recovery in some way or working through some kind of addiction, you know how important that network is around you and how much the people around you not just help you potentially out of your addiction, but can also drag you back into it. And therefore, the people that you surround yourself with, the community, the environment is going to impact that outcome of the health behavior. In the context of fat loss, this is where programs and coaches and communities can really help. Learning about this stuff is very helpful. Telling your friends and family things like, hey, this is a goal of mine. Do you mind if we reduce, you know, the takeout nights or do you mind if we do an active date so I can get my steps in today rather than sitting in a cafe? So, of course, this truly is not the the be all and end all of the psychological approach or interaction with fat loss and fat loss fundamentals. But if I had to pick one approach or or one kind of model, I really wanted to bring that trans theoretical model because I think that it's not obviously discussed that much in the fitness space. In fact, I've never heard it being discussed in the fitness space, unfortunately. And yet I think it's more profound. And the more that you guys engage with it as a concept and even do some journaling on it, maybe after this podcast, the more I think you'll come to realize some areas in your life where perhaps there are some gaps in that whole concept of values versus action. Like where are you out of alignment with your values and therefore You know, you may think that you're actioning on something when you're actually not uh, or whereby, you know, your actions reflect a completely different value altogether. And that's okay too. But we have to acknowledge when things are contradicting. Anyway, I feel like I'm repeating myself from last week in the last week's uh, session, but it's something that can be really easily ignored. In fact, as humans, we are great. We are great at (laughs) self-delusion. Sometimes it's a positive self-delusion. Sometimes it's a great coping mechanism. Other times it's not so helpful. So we just got to figure out the times when it is and the times when it's not. Now, in terms of how biological and psychological factors interact, well, baby, it is one big dirty dance. Now, the reason (laughs) I am really wanting to address this is because I actually had a comment from someone recently uh, on my first episode. They just left a comment, which was, it's all great to go through the biopsychosocial model as concepts, as individual concepts, biological, psychological, and social, or socioeconomic even, but how do these interact with each other? And I realize that sometimes I think I fail to address that, right? And feel free to give me that feedback. I I love your feedback. You guys are helping me to improve this stuff. So I appreciate it. Don't feel like it always has to be, or to your fat loss, if you're on a fat loss journey. If you are highly stressed all the time, you know that that's going to make things a little bit harder for you. 
And therefore, it's worthwhile also putting time aside to address the stress. If we look at how physiology, biology can impact psychology, well, that example goes both ways, right? If your cortisol is chronically elevated, that's going to make you feel that stress response. And that may make you make choices in life that are not necessarily conducive to less stress. We know that because we know that if we're stressed at work, sometimes we bring it home and we bring it home. That means that we're living with it 24 seven, right? From work to home, back to work again. All of that can impact and it's a bi-directional effect. But we know this in an even bigger, bigger, bigger concept, bigger, broader, like bigger overview concept, I guess, right? So if you have obesity, you're more likely to become depressed. That isn't just me making that statement. That comes from the National Health and Medical Research Council um, in Australia, at least. But nonetheless, you will find these across the globe. Also, people with depression are also more likely to develop obesity. People with obesity face stigma in all areas of life right? From education to personal relationships to even healthcare, which is wild and frustrating. And this discrimination affects the confidence that you might have in your abilities and your self-worth and can even lead to loneliness, low self-esteem, depression, anxiety. So that is a physiological thing leading to a psychological outcome. Now, I want to honor the fact that it's not obesity necessarily that's causing these things, right? So there's a difference between correlation and causation. So we have to acknowledge the fact that if there is weight stigma in our society, the pressures many people face who have obesity or even overweight are going to impact their mental health. That's not the fault of fat itself. That's really the result of the perception we as a society may have of fat and what it means. So that's a clear distinction to make, right? That's not like the fat is not making people depressed necessarily. It's like a multifactorial kind of phenomenon here. Regardless of this, there is a clear bidirectional relationship between our psychology and our physiology in many areas, right? Not just in fat loss or overweight and obesity. And hopefully I did a good enough job to kind of establish that interaction effect, what's going on there. So I know that that has been a lot, but let's just recap the key takeaways from this podcast. Number one, fat loss or weight loss as a concept is simple, but that does not mean that it is easy to implement and adhere to, right? And that is because number two, we have very strong evolutionary biological and psychological programs, if you will, and they are running in the background. So it's really important to respect those strong factors. And if we have goals for fat loss, just know that we have to be structured, systematic, and considered in our approach because we're going to come up against these very strong biological, psychological drives. Number three, don't underestimate small changes that you can make, but keep a track of them. Keep a track of them. Don't try to attempt 20 of them at once. Pick three that you know you're going to be able to adhere to. Number four, the trans theoretical model or stages of change model helps us to understand where we might be on our journey. And this can help us to tailor our behavior and seek out help appropriately or accordingly. That's really important. And then finally, psychology 
is important. Stress impacts appetite. Stress also impacts sleep, which can in turn increase appetite. So even though we can get so, so caught up in the act of doing more for fat loss, right? Dieting harder or running more or exercising more. We have to also acknowledge whether we're also doing things that bring the stress down, not just meditating and relaxing and doing breath work but how are we aiming to remove our cognitive distortions that might be causing complexities in our relationships be them at work or be them at home so psychology is much more than just as i said you know the individual things that we might do even from a mental mindset perspective but also the things that impact our relationships because they will contribute to our stress I finally want to say, for those of you on a fat loss journey right now, I want to leave you with this reminder. You are awesome. You're here listening to this podcast. You're doing the work. Don't be so hard on yourself. The criticism isn't as helpful as you think. Let me say that again. The criticism, that internal dialogue is not as helpful as you think. Perhaps, perhaps it's how someone spoke to you in your childhood, but at the time you didn't realize that their criticism was actually their disdain for themselves. You interpret it as disdain for you, but it was actually just a reflection of the unaddressed disdain they had for themselves. Anyway, we probably need to discuss that concept too in a whole episode in and of itself, like really unpacking some of the, I would say, unhealthy beliefs that we have in some ways been handed down through our parents, but also acknowledging that our parents probably were handed them down as well. And all of these different experiences that we have in life shape the way that we perceive things. And therefore, sometimes the criticism is automatic and it's negative and it's automatic and it's constantly running through our mind. And unless we take the time to listen to it and to also catch it, catch it, catch it, catch it and get ahead of it and say, you know what? Actually, I wouldn't speak to a friend like this. I'm not going to speak to myself like this. This is unhelpful. Maybe it worked in the past. It's not working anymore for me. Anyway, I can't hold you here any longer. It has already been too long. I love you. Thank you for listening. If you found any part of this helpful, insightful, please rate it. Please give it five stars. The more you do that, the more Apple and Spotify support it and, and spread it out to other people so that other people can come across it. And, you know, also so we can get more brand representation in this space. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? I will see you, hear you. You will hear me if you choose to listen and tune in next week. Next time. I never know how to end these. And I always have a bit of like, uh, I'm like, you hang up first. You know what I mean? I have that kind of vibe at the end. Goodbye. Goodbye.